0: Hey, everybody, you're listening to Top Quartile, where we bring you stories from the front lines of growth in community-focused financial services. Welcome back to Top Quartile. I'm your host, Dan Marks, the president here at Infusion, and uh, really excited to have Neil Stanley on the show today. So welcome, Neil. Thanks, Dan. Help us get to know you a little better. What's your background and current role and those kind of things?
1: Well, very well, Dan, I came into banking after working on a PhD in economics at Iowa State University. In academia, I was taught to ask lots of questions. Ask the why question was really the theme of academia. So I started at the bank and I was working at First National Bank of Omaha. I kept asking questions and I pretty quickly realized that they weren't interested in my questions or really anybody else's questions. They just wanted me to follow the procedures, the policies and the regulations. So I kind of started to fit in, and uh, I was fortunate to land a role in one of the most progressive banks in the country, First National Bank of Omaha, owned by John and Bruce Lauritsen at the time. I was there until 2006, and really enjoyed that. And then I became the CEO of a bank in Iowa and Nebraska, and I left that to start this business in 2010. So we've been at it for uh, 12 years. I am the founder and CEO of The Core Point and we help our subscribers better price and manage long-term savings. I'm also a member of the TS Banking Group, which has operations in Iowa, North Dakota, Illinois, and Wisconsin. In addition, I am the IDEA Exchange Leader of the Shefshnoff CEO Affiliation Program. And lastly, I'm a member of the Pillar Seminary Board of Directors. So those are the things that keep me busy, Dan.
0: So i got to just ask, maybe what's one fascinating fact that most people don't know about you, if you have any free time after all that?
1: Probably that would be the fact that I have two U.S. business process patents. Most people don't think of bankers having patents. They, maybe the fintech world has patents, but most people that spent 30 years as a banker probably don't have a patent. That's, I
0: think there's, I've not met too many bankers that do, so hats off. And so you gave a little bit of a snapshot of, of CorePoint, your background, which gives you just a fascinating view like us in some of the trends that have shaped the industry recently. What do you see kind of happening now related to liquidity and banks and how they're, and maybe there's any similarities or differences across the industry on on how banks are thinking about liquidity in this kind of unprecedented time?
1: That's a good way to describe it. Certainly unprecedented. I've been in banking since 1984. And even though I've seen interest rates move around As a percentage, they've never done what they've just done this year so far. They maybe went up 300 basis points from seven to 10 during my time in the industry, but never from 0.25 to 3.25 and headed up to likely 4.5 for overnight Fed funds. So the trends around liquidity, that's a big question. But ultimately, most bankers think of themselves as loan producers. And without loans, they think, oh, I really don't have a demand for money. But in fact, in this environment, we can make a lot of profit just by investing in 4% U.S. treasuries. It wasn't long ago, Dan, that 4% was the handle on a quality loan. Now you can put it in risk-free U.S. treasuries that are in the six-month to one-year category. So that's really changed the demand for money at banks. So we've really left the ultra-low levels of interest rates in recent years, you know, really since the Great Recession. And it's going to reveal some serious gaps. Those gaps are going to be found in Manker's ability to agilely address, how do we keep the book of business that we have, low cost, while not letting all the funds that we could get, if we paid up, go someplace else? So it's really going to be an agility question, for most financial institutions as we leave behind the artificial low rates that came about because of quantitative easing and all of the Fed programs.
0: So Neil, what's different about this kind of competitive environment than may have been different certainly 20 years ago or certainly 40 years ago in the last time we had kind of a similar interest rate environment?
1: There are several things that come to mind. First, and probably easiest to recognize for all of us, is that we didn't have a FinTech environment the last time that we had higher interest rates. And why would that be important? It's because the FinTech world is all designed to put power in the hands of the depositor, power to move money, whether it be within the financial institution or even between financial institutions. We talk about it like you could offset any overdraft or NSF activity by simply setting up account balance movement. So, hey, we can automate that. We can basically create our own sweep accounts to cover overdrafts. Well, that sounds great to me as a consumer. And we would not have thought about the fact that basically you can not just sweep to avoid overdraft, but you could sweep to move money to the highest yield as well. And I think that technology is being unleashed into our industry in a way that we will pretty... I would say pretty soon realize that, wow, if that's the case, why would I leave my money in a non-interest bearing balance or low interest balance? I don't need to close the account. I'll, I'll keep all my ACH activity, direct deposits. I'll keep those where they are. I'll just sweep out the excess balances over to something that's really helping me earn money, make my money work for me. The other things that have happened, Dan, in 2011, we eliminated the prohibition on interest-bearing commercial DDA. Until then, you weren't allowed to pay a business interest on their checking account. So it was a moot point. It's like, I can't pay you. And And everybody was in the same boat. Now, even though it's been an option for many years, with low interest rates, it really wasn't a big deal. And lastly, in the pandemic, we also took away the restrictions on savings account withdrawals. And again, why did we do that? Well, we wanted people to easily have access to their money. But if you put those three things together, hey, you can pay me interest on my business checking account, and I can legally have access to my savings account anytime I want. There's no withdrawal restrictions legally. Now, that doesn't mean that some financial institutions haven't maintained them. And then I have this technology that easily allows me to monitor my accounts, send me notices, and sweep accounts, balances, I can easily set up the process to sweep to high interest bearing accounts so that I really minimize the amount of effort to go out and put my money to work. Well said. It's a you know, mobile app. I'm managing where are
0: my liquid funds being kept at your particular point. I'm just going back and forth between institutions. I may not close any of those accounts, but I'm chasing yield for those people that are uh, and, and every percentage point that rates rise that makes that, the payoff from doing that that much better. So yeah, great point about just the differences. And that really speaks to being proactive. Maybe you don't have a necessarily a huge need today, but that can rise very quickly. And so preparing for a future and being
1: proactive
0: is that much more important given some of
1: those trends you talked about. You got it. Here's one thing that your audience might appreciate too. We've done all these deposit decay studies where we studied how long a checking account might let live, what its life is. All those studies were done in an ultra low interest rate environment. So my suggestion to bankers is, oh, your deposit decay study is probably accurate for the account. It just may not be relevant when it comes to the balances.
0: And so is is that,
1: as you work with different banks, do you see a different level of appetite? Most certainly. We are far from homogeneous. The approaches are so dramatically different. You have some financial institutions who literally believe holding the line on on cost of funds is the secret to their success. And they're just going to not be moved by the fact that the market rates have gone up. On the other hand, Dan, we see some who are simply trying to keep up with US treasuries and they are acting as if that it's just he who has the highest rate wins. And in reality, it's the combination of volume and spread that creates profit. It's not just having the low cost and it's not just having the biggest portfolio. It's that sweet spot of being able to combine those together. Yeah. And so, so the, the cousin to that is
0: what's the asset mix at the bank, right? What's the mix between business and consumer and different product types and those kind of things? And then also what's, I guess, the mix of the portfolio held in securities versus
1: loans? The business model is definitely a factor in how aggressive the bank anticipates it's going to need to be. But what's happened is with loan rates lagging on the way up, you wouldn't think loan rates would lag. You you would expect deposit rates to lag, and they have. But a lot of financial institutions have lagged loan rates going up, and we've seen a compression between wholesale and retail asset yields. The differentials have been diminished. So there are a lot of financial institutions who have astutely recognized that you don't have to have loans to make a lot of money in this environment, as wholesale environment has the wholesale securities market has really driven profitability for, for many financial institutions. But then on the other hand, you have the unrealized losses that are tied to the securities that the duration was exceptionally long for some of those that were booked in 20 and 21. And they can be paralyzed by the thought of, you know, the bonds we bought are underwater, so maybe we shouldn't be buying bonds. When in reality, the best time, Dan, to buy bonds is when you have the biggest unrealized losses because that's when the yields are best. It's much like dealing with the stock market. You don't stop buying when prices are at their floor. That's really the opportunity then.
0: Well, and I guess I guess somewhat related to that is just if someone still has more liquidity than they know what to deploy with, and if they can bid, say, 5%, 6 7% for a quality loan, then that's probably driving some of that lagging of the loan rates, right?
1: Yeah. So if, we have, as, as I say, it's not homogeneous. There are some financial institutions that still have tremendous amount of liquidity, but it's so inconsistent. And the prices lag on lending because- The liquid ones are saying, well, you know, I'm substantially above my cost of funds. And what we're seeing here is the damage being done by financial institutions who do not use funds transfer pricing. And I teach in banking schools. I lead these idea exchanges. And there's still a lot of financial institutions who are using the archaic approach of cost of funds driving pricing. Cost of funds is not going to be effective in this environment. When Interest rates were benign when when basically the differentials from high to low were very small. You could use cost of funds as a proxy for funds transfer pricing, but in this environment, it is ineffective, it is detrimental to look at your historical cost of funds. It lags, it ignores the yield curve, it implies that only assets can be profitable. In reality, deposits now are much more profitable in many cases than loans. So what do I mean by that? If you look at wholesale resources and look at the spread between deposits and wholesale funding and the spread between wholesale funding and loans, there's more spread from deposits to wholesale funding than there is from wholesale funding to the loan rate. That is super unusual. And today it's not unusual. It's it's a, a unique phenomenon of this environment. And so is that the catalyst then for what's sort of driving a change in people's looking at their just
0: liquidity plans and deposit funding plans?
1: It is. Really what's happened is that the banks had gotten used to low rates and quantitative easing, and we have grown accustomed to stability, even though the the regulators said, hey, you need to plan for in your stress testing a 400 basis point rate change. Over the last 13 years, we kind of scoffed at that and said, well, that's academic, that's not really going to ever happen. Guess what? That's what we're going to get. And so it's kind of undoing the conventional wisdom of, well, it all kind of works out. No, there's a huge difference from those who know how to price and say, I'm not taking that loan at four and a quarter. So real quickly on that, I've never met a good commercial lender who started with price, never. They always negotiate the situation, they learn about the situation that they're looking to be involved with, and price comes at the very end. And retail bankers, Dan, tend to lead with price. Oh, you're interested in one of our deposit offerings? So you started talking about the customer
0: needs. How does the balance sheet view, You know, if you were to think about sort of the pure balance sheet or trading desk view, what we're talking about now with the customer needs and relationship?
1: So recently I've had uh, people talk to me about the value of relationship pricing. I really struggle with how we've let the idea of relationship pricing become built into our expectations. I worked in an organization many, many years ago where we believed that if we just knew the size of the relationship, we could price everything very, very efficient. When in reality, relationship pricing caused compromise and compensation. If it was a great relationship, then the next deal we wanted to compromise yield. And then if it was a bad relationship, the next deal we wanted to compensate. We wanted to be overly aggressive with pricing. And so what's happening with our balance sheets is that bankers in this time of very different environment with liquidity, very polar opposite yield expectations, are finding that they don't know how to navigate and keep progress in profit of each deal. We should price opportunities. We should understand that our balance sheet means that we have raw material. Our factory is producing loans and investments, and it uses deposits as the raw material. So if we're going to go out and buy raw material, we've got to get the volume we need at the lowest possible cost. And how we're doing that, we have to switch from the idea that We just have one rate for everybody? Oh, no. Every institution that's going to listen to this podcast is going to know that they have their standard rates, they have their promotional rates, and they have their exception pricing. The problem with that is very few have made it scalable. And making it scalable means that the front line is not in doubt about how to work through the standard to the promotional to the negotiated. And so the balance sheets seem to be kind of random. It's like, hey, we got lots of liquidity, so let's go out and do loan pricing that's very competitive. Let's go build loans. Well, you really should be looking at loans and investments. And then on the other hand, if we've got a lot of loans, then we're just bidding up the price of the deposits. Well, what if you curtailed the price of the deposits, got more volume at a lower cost? Both sides can be overplayed, either playing the idea we got lots of cheap funds, We're overplaying the idea that we have this dramatic demand for borrowing.
0: Maybe an example of of how a more personalized approach that helps you build customer relationships and build the balance sheet at the same time. How does that example work out?
1: In our industry, we have insurance as the thing that does a level set, right? FDIC or NCUA insurance means that people don't have to worry about credit quality of the financial institution. So they tend to say, well, if there's no credit risk, it's just about the price until we open their eyes to other things. So the cookie cutter approach is here's a rate sheet. I'll get you a cup of coffee and then you tell me what you want. And as I said, in the low rate environment, eh, it really didn't matter. They're just going to bank where they felt comfort. But interest rates are moving from zero to four and a half. And as they do, it matters if I get paid interest. And so How do you negotiate that? You can't just give a blanket, hey, we're going up. If the beta on deposits is close to one, oh, you're wasting interest expense because a lot of people aren't going to demand that. Basically, Dan, we have, I would call, three categories of depositors when it comes to price sensitivity. We have the content. Some could say sleepy. We have the curious. And then we have the actively seeking. And we need to prepare the front line to engage each category and yet systematically work them through it. We don't just jump to, here's the best rate we have. Oh, no. We show them the manufacturer's suggested retail price, just like a car dealer. And if the standard rates are good enough for the sleepers, wonderful. We're happy to take care of you. That's a fair value. We're in great condition, great position. Then for the curious, if they're kind of kicking the tires a little bit, we can sweeten the pot systematically. And then for those actively seeking and kind of that match it or lose it mentality, we've got some special products and we've got some special offerings that are priced very efficiently to go in between low cost funding and wholesale funding so that we give them some of that differential and it's done through competent professional engagement, not, hey, I'm going to call my supervisor. You can't tell people that you're a professional, but yet you've got to call the supervisor every time you wanna get an exception price. What we're seeing, Dan, is the industry is moving away from the order taker product pusher in the retail banking world to someone who's a competent professional who has options and a process that makes it much more engaging. And they will see us as trusted advisors when we give them credibility, reliability, intimacy, and a understanding of mutual value. Good for the bank, and good for the depositor at the same time.
0: A key thing that's probably different than even the last cycle is the fact that most of those decision-making is actually not happening with a person. Some on the business side, certainly it's business, but certainly a lot of the consumers is, your marketing is your rate sheet, right? Having the, they're being bombarded with ads and communication. They're not coming to the branch to make deposits because they have direct deposit. So a lot of that shopping behavior is actually happening and they may even not even talk to a banker before they buy, right? It, it all may be happening on the website. I think that's that's some of the complexity, too, that was, certainly wasn't the case the last time we were in a rapidly rising, sustained rate environment in the early 2000s.
1: That's definitely true, Dan. We're seeing, because of the pandemic and because of the fintech and just our orientation as consumers, we are no longer thinking, and I just chuckle when I think, one of the valued principles when I started in banking is you only do business with people you can look in the eye. That's no longer true. We don't wait until we can go see people eye to eye. Well, we might see them eye to eye virtually, but we're not going to their office and saying that's a key due diligence thing is to show up at their desk and look them eye to eye. So what we're doing through the fact that we've introduced technologies like Amazon and Uber and Netflix, is we become very comfortable navigating in a digital world. But if you think about the long-term savings products, they were built in the 60s and 70s. So how do you navigate that unless you upgrade the toolkit that you have to work with those depositors who now have on their cell phone the ability to Google what's the highest interest rate on a savings account? It's a big deal.
0: Yeah, I think about the last CD I bought, which was several years ago, pre-rates. I mean, it was all a couple of clicks, right? I never talked to a person. You go in your account, you make it. So that's kind of the thing. That's where a really, really smart data-driven communications approach has got to be a key part of this discussion. You can't just rely on the banker negotiating things because in some cases, the banker's not even going to talk to the customer.
1: So that's a key part of what we do, Dan, is to prompt a very relevant and impactful conversation. So while we know digital is the means at which most activity occurs, people who have long-term savings are super cautious. Like people don't get into CDs because uh, they're risk takers, right? Long-term savings means I am somebody who wants to have simple, safe, and predictable. And they are typically very willing to talk to somebody if they think they're competent, They're not gonna talk to somebody just to waste time, but if they think they're competent, they're going to engage. And what we've done is we've created products and processes that make the engagement very valuable, very worthwhile for both the banker and the depositor. You make a good point that the 70 year
0: old who's buying most of CDs is one profile I mean, that's the segment that's growing on Facebook because everybody else already has an account or has, or has moved on to something else. So I think a bank who doesn't think about the digital integration of an omnichannel world and to me it kind of reminds you of, of you know when Bank one tried to force people to pay to use a teller line right like you're, you're forcing somebody into a channel that doesn't necessarily fit their preferences and so
1: we're big believers that what I call face-to-face digital, is the realm of long-term savers. So digital alone is really hard to navigate for a conservative, super conservative long-term saver. And face-to-face in person is problematic. And so things like Glia and Pop.io, those are huge for a conservative long-term saver to be able, just like we're doing now, is how do we engage in a way that builds the nonverbal as well as the verbal As I'm talking today, I know that there's a relationship there that goes beyond just some sort of digital activity. Digital is essential, but it is not sufficient in the long-term saver world. You have to have both, the presence of relationship and digital. You can't leave one out. I completely embrace that. Because most of the time, customers want,
0: a a mix of channels based on their preferences, not one or the other. I mean, so maybe a bank doesn't necessarily feel the pinch of liquidity, maybe from their particular Alco situation. What are some of the things they maybe should be thinking about now to get ready for when that imperative occurs some months into the future?
1: The thing that we observe frequently is that a financial institution tends to be a don't fix it unless it's broke kind of mentality is, hey, we'll just keep doing what we've always done until it doesn't work anymore. And that's problematic in this environment because what we're seeing, as you know, from looking at the data, loans were growing in the second quarter and deposits were shrinking. So the balance sheets are evolving. Now, as the economy changes, we can't say that that evolution will be perpetuated indefinitely. But what we do know is that the wise prepare and they prepare in advance. Strategy is about anticipation and action. I recently gave a presentation and one of the people critiqued it and they said, Neil's contrarian. Well, I don't think I'm really contrarian. I'm simply saying that if you manage as if it's never gonna change, you're probably gonna have some issues. So let's manage to where we're going, not to where we are, but to where we're going. And where we're going is less liquidity, more higher rates, not going up forever, but going up and plateauing. And as it plateaus, you have to understand that there are some products that you haven't had that you need. First of all, you need to systematically control cost of funds because there's huge differences. Many banks are lagging in cost of funds. In other words, they're keeping it down, they're holding the line. But many, Dan, are saying, hey, we need the ability to negotiate on the spot. And so they've prepared their team to do that. It takes training. There are still frontline bankers who are still not aware that we're not in 2021. And in 2021, most financial institutions said, anybody that wants to negotiate, just let them go. Give them their money and let them go. And unless executive management has specifically trained them on a conversational approach, they're still stuck in 2021, and it makes no sense. It's, it's the diametrical opposite of where they need to be in terms of finding solutions. So as you think about the needs that we have coming up with the market evolving in terms of Fed funds, what really needs to happen is executive management needs to create a systematic approach to each of the categories, standard pricing, promotional pricing, negotiated pricing and retention pricing those are four specific things that if your team says we'll know it when we see it won't work it has to be quantified and prepared for as opposed to reactionary
0: as we wrap up if you could go back to yourself knowing everything you know now you know maybe sit down with yourself being at the bank call it around 2000 when we had another rising rate environment what would you tell yourself your younger self
1: As somebody who had a a, a substantial role at a young age, it was quite obvious that I needed to be very careful about how I use my words because people said, you know, I was 27 years old and I was a, a holding company executive. And so I found out that I couldn't be casual about the words I used because people would say, oh, oh, that's where we're headed. No, I wasn't making a decision. I was just throwing out an idea. I came to be very understanding of what it meant to be persistent and how to be intentional. If I were to talk to my younger self, I'd say, in addition to being persistent and intentional, also be patient because some of the things that have happened, you know, in 2010, when I started my business, wow, that was premature. I think be a little more patient. And instead of starting my own business in 2010, maybe go to an organization like TS Bank, that was allowing people to be very entrepreneurial, where I could start my own business and work for the bank at the same time, that would have been a huge advantage. I ended up going to work for them in 2016 as the president of community banking, but I didn't think that that was even possible. So I should have been a little more patient about that. And then in 2019, I left my job at the bank and ramped up the business only to find the pandemic. Now, nobody could have forecasted the pandemic, but I guess it's that matter of balancing patience with persistence and, you know, timing is everything. Well said. Neil, thanks for coming on the show.
0: That's it for today on Top Quartile. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Top Quartile wherever you find podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate a five-star rating. And if you're interested in getting an opportunity assessment, head over to infusionmarketinggroup.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.